Second Chronicles chapter 5 says, So all the work that Solomon had done for the house of the Lord was finished. All the work that Solomon had done for the house of the Lord was finished. One of the things I love about Calvary Chapel is chapter by chapter, verse by verse, teaching accompanied with application. I appreciate that so much about Chuck Smith. Uh, it's not only chapter by chapter, but verse by verse, but it's also how does this verse apply to you, which is a distinctive mark of Calvary Chapel. And, and so how I, I, uh, that word finished really did something in my heart. So all the work that Solomon had done for the house of the Lord was finished. So in the weeks prior to this, Solomon's building the temple. He, 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 it's not like the tabernacle, which was a relatively simple. It was a tent. There were furnishings put in the tent. Now there was a lot of work put into these furnishings, the menorah, the, the, uh, the bronze altar, the, the, uh, the, the veil and uh, the, the, uh, the cherubim and the Ark of the Covenant. But what Solomon put together was uh, just uh, was it one of the seven wonders of the ancient world? I don't know. It was. It, it, if it wasn't, it should have been. It was just a a, a phenomenal project that took uh, how long was it? Seven years. I I, 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 I we read it. I I don't remember how much. Seven years. It took seven years and two months. Unbelievable amount of detail. Uh, there were pillars in the front the, um, of the uh, temple that were 52 feet high. That's that I would say that's about you know that's about five stories high, and around the top of them were uh, on each of them were a hundred pomegranates. There were palm trees um, in the. Uh, inside the temple on the wall, uh, carved in the wall. Everything is overlaid with fine gold. And, you know, we spoke of just the distinct nature of that temple. God is doing a distinct work through you. You are now the temple of the Holy Spirit. And, which means what? It means that Jesus is living through you. Christianity is not about you imitating Jesus. It's about Jesus living through you because you are, uh, Jesus is living inside of you. But he's, he's, he's making those cherubim in your heart. He's making each of those hundred pomegranates. They were all made out of gold. And that means what? Fire. Every single one of those things in order to, to do the detail on, uh, on, the, uh, on the pomegranates and, and on those palm trees and on all the engravings all over the walls. It takes fire and it, and it takes pain and fire. You were not called to a life of, uh, of uh, free of suffering. 
What did we uh, hear on Sunday morning, Acts chapter 13? Uh, I quote the verse to myself all the time and to others. It is through many tribulations that you enter the kingdom of God. And, and, and those tribulations, you, you get put through the fire, and e- each time you agree to go through the fire and have him make that pomegranate or whatever he's making in your life, it, if, you ch- if you don't run away, and, and one of the worst things a pastor sees that grieves my heart, people running away from that refining fire where he's trying to make that golden palm tree in your life to, to glorify his name. You, if you don't run away after that trial... It is through many tribulations that we enter the kingdom of God. After that tribulation of fire, what's going to be left is a, a, a beautiful pomegranate or cherubim or carved offering where, uh, that, that the Lord has done. You are the temple of the Holy Spirit. No longer is there a, a, a temple in Jerusalem with 100 pomegranates around each pillar, 52 and a half feet high, and all kinds of ornate things inside of the temple. You are the temple of the Holy Spirit. But it says here, so all the work that Solomon had done for the house of the Lord was finished. Psalm 138, verse 8, a good verse for every single one of you to memorize, says this, you, Lord, will complete that which concerns me. You, Lord, will complete that which concerns me. What's what's a verse that's a New Testament equivalent? Someone answer it except for Freddie. Philippians 1.6. Sorry, Freddie. (laughs) He who began a good work in you will complete it. And if you just go, go back, you don't actually, you don't have to uh, turn there. But um, um, in, in 1 Chronicles 28, speaking right before, or, or uh, right before David died and he got, he, he was coronated as king, David said to Solomon, regarding him building the temple, he said, God will not leave you nor forsake you until you have finished all, not some, all the work for the service of the house of the Lord. And so here a few chapters later, it says he finished it. And the Lord does indeed put a calling on your life to do a particular kind of work And the best thing that you can do is not look to the right or to the left. Jesus says, anyone who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is not fit for the kingdom of God. Don't don't look to the right or left. Just go forward until that work is finished. (laughs) Because if you look to the right, it's like, what's up with that Christian? They were in the middle of the work. They backslid. What's up with that Christian or that church, they were right in the middle of a work and, and the whole thing crumbled because the, whatever, the pastor went into adultery or something like that. Don't look to the right or to the left. Just believe the promise of God. He will concern that which, he will complete that which concerns you. He who began a good work in you will complete it. He will finish it. He will finish the work. Now, are you going to fall flat on your face from time to time? I certainly have. Every Christian has. 
You get up, 1 John 1, 9, if you confess your sins, he's faithful to forgive it and cleanse you of all unrighteousness and move on to complete and finish the work that God has called you to do. So Solomon finished the temple. In the middle of verse 1, and Solomon brought in the things which his father David had dedicated, the silver and the gold and all the furnishings, and he put them in the treasuries of the house of God. So there's way, they had received way more than the people were so generous when it came to giving towards the building of this temple. They had way more than they needed. And so um, he, he, uh, he puts it in the treasuries of the house of God. Verse 2, now Solomon assembled the elders of Israel and all the heads of the tribes, the chief fathers of the children of Israel in Jerusalem, that they might bring the ark of the covenant of the Lord up from the city of David, which is in Zion. So again, this is the ark which was made in the, the, at the very beginning of the children of Israel's 40 years in the wilderness. It was made there, and it was put in that tent called the Tabernacle of Meeting. And it's the only thing that I can see that went, went from the tabernacle into the temple that actually became sort of a part of the ministry of the temple. There were other things brought in um, a, a, as well, but... The, but it looks like all the other furnishings were made new, except for the ark. They brought up the ark, the tabernacle of meeting, and all the holy furnishings that were in the, um, the, in the tabernacle. The priests and the Levites brought them up, and King Solomon and all the congregation of Israel who were assembled with him before the ark were sacrificing sheep and oxen that could not be counted or numbered for the multitude. Then the priests brought in the ark of the covenant of the Lord to the, its place into the inner sanctuary of the temple to the most holy place under the wings of the cherubim. So again, at the risk of repeating myself too many times here, if you've been with us, in the temple there was the most holy place where the Ark of the Covenant was with. The cherubim, the angels, looking down on the mercy seat which was over the Ark of the Covenant, and the presence of the Lord, the literally shining visual presence of the Lord was above it. Only one person ever went into that place, that was the high priest, and they only went once at one time a year. Then there was the veil. In back of the veil, there was called the holy place, which only the priest could go into. In that, there was the table of the showbread with the 12 pieces of bread, loaves of bread, representing God's provision. Jesus is the bread of life, the provision for the people of Israel. There was the menorah. There was the table of incense, where they burned incense. Only priests allowed in that place. In the in, 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 outside the holy place, in the front is the altar that, where they would have sacrifices. And then there was just an area where basically anyone could go who was a Jew. And I believe outside that place, that, you know, if you were a Gentile, uh, there was places for, for, for the Gentiles to go. But uh, that, that is, is, um, is what's going on in here. Verse 8, the cherubim spread their wings over the place of the ark, and the cherubim overshadowed the ark and its poles. 
The poles extended so that the ends of the poles of the ark could be seen from the holy place. Now, this is different than the tabernacle. This is different than the tabernacle. And the tabernacle, the, uh, for those of you who love detail, uh, the tabernacle is just the Ark of the Covenant. And then when they moved it from place to place to place, they put the poles through some rings in the side and they went on the priest's um, shoulders and it was carried around. Here, the poles are put in there as a permanent fixture. And they could, they're actually sticking outside of the most holy place into the holy place. And I'd love to know why. If some of you can study that this week and tell me what's the significance of that, I'm not sure what the significance of that is. I do know at one point after they rebelled in a terrible way about, let me see, when was it? 400 years later, the Lord left, his presence left the temple. It's completely departed. And maybe it has something to do with that, which is, you know, the Lord, he's with you, but you need to stay with them. Rather, you need to stay with him. But I'm not sure. I'd love for you guys to seek the Lord and study it and see if there's any significance of the, of the pulls Again, it's different than the tabernacle, which was carted from place to place. The poles were not in, were, were not inserted. They were not in the most holy place. They, they would be put in the rings when it was moved. But here it's a permanent fixture. And then it says, in front of the inner sanctuary, but they could not be seen from outside, and they are there to this day. Now, I love that verse. Every time I see they're there to this day, I underline it. Be- and, and this is the reason. On Tuesday night, we get into some details. I, I never go, I very rarely, if, if ever, go this, this, this deep on, on Sunday morning into detail. But that's very significant because it dates this. It dates the writing. So many people who think the whole Bible is made up, I actually spent three semesters at a seminary meaning a place where they train pastors who believed basically the whole Old Testament was written at the time of Babylon when the Jews were exiled at a much, much later time. And they just sort of made up stuff. And oh boy, did I get into some battles with a, with a professor of that class. I was young and uh, I had a lot less control over my tongue than I do today. But, but, but um, uh, and I, I, he was not a regenerate man by any indication, but he was sitting there teaching in a seminary, uh, which was um, really strange, but that's the case in seminaries around our country. And uh, um, he was a, it was a Hebrew class. But um, uh, it dates it to the time well, you know, sometime before that the temple was destroyed and everything was carted off to, to Babylon, which is very significant because it means it was written close in time to the events. And so, in many respects, the battle for your faith of Christianity is the, is the battle of whether the Bible 
is the revealed word of God. It all comes down to that. And that's where there's just relentless attacks against the word of God. It was you know, written way, way later. It wasn't written around the time. They're just making up stories. And so every time um, I see it's, it's there to this day, well, that's close in time to the, relatively close in time to uh, the events um, that took place. Verse 10, nothing was in the ark except the two tablets which Moses put there at Horeb. When the Lord made a covenant with the children of Israel, when they had come out of Egypt. So, no longer was the manna there, the, the bowl of manna, which was put in at one point. No longer was Aaron's rod there, which was put in at some point. Some people said when the Philistines stole it, under, remember under, if, if, if you've been with us for a while, remember Eli, under Eli, it was, the Ark of the Covenant was actually stolen by the Philistines. Some people th- think they took a couple of those things. We don't really know why uh, the, the, the other things that were originally placed in the Ark of the Covenant are no longer there, but uh, it says there, uh, verse 11, and it came to pass when the priests came out of the most holy place, for all the priests who were present had sanctified themselves without keeping to their divisions. So this is a tremendous ceremony that, that, that took place. It's a, a, a tremendous ceremony that took place and all the priests who were divided, we read about it earlier, into 24 divisions, and they would come two weeks per year to do their job, and then they would go back to wherever they lived. Now all 24 of them are show, or those divisions are showing up in Jerusalem. There's, there's thousands of people here, including hundreds and hundreds of Levites and priests. Verse 12, uh, 12, and the Levites who were uh, the singers and those of Asaph and Heman and Judithan with their sons and their brethren stood at the east end of the altar clothed with in white linen, having cymbals, stringed instruments and harps, and with them 120 priests sounding with trumpets. Can you imagine if we had 120 trumpets blasting in this room here <laughs> wow that would be that 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 would be um, overwhelming uh, but they were in a, a, a huge open space and, and it was outside because this was for the public the public was not allowed inside the temple they were allowed outside uh, the temple um, and so there's this tremendous celebration, and I just love the emphasis there on worship. You know, that second worship song tonight was a lot about just being in the presence of the Lord. Wow, when we have worship, somehow we get to get outside of being so self-conscious and, and so in, in our own world, our own thoughts, and just focus on the Lord and, and open up our hearts and surrender to Him. Worship is so much a part throughout the Bible. Rather, I should say, worship with song and instruments is so much a part of the Bible here. Um, and, and, and by the way, you know, I, I, don't, I don't like to really put a spotlight on, on, on other churches who have doctrines that are, are messed up, but I don't have a choice because... I'm a shepherd of the flock of God. You do run into many, particularly in this city, um, where, um, uh, where, where there's a cult that does not believe in any musical instruments during a worship service because they say it does, they don't show up in the New Testament. 
it's incredible to me. And, and by the way, in addition to the cult, there's a, there are mainstream denominations who believe the same thing, including, I, there's an author, I really respect her, uh, some of the work she's done, but she goes to a church, not only do they, they don't believe in instruments, they don't believe in doing anything except singing psalms. Not songs, psalms, one of the 150 psalms. We're in Galatians on, uh, on Sunday morning. We're, we're going to be learning over and over and over again, do not add to the blood of Jesus and to the cross. What J- Paul says to the Galatians in chapter 3, verse 1, the cross of Christ was clearly portrayed in front of you. So, so we, we, we trust in the cross alone and and, and nothing else. We don't add to it. And by the way, if you're a real Christian, by the way, you're not allowed to have instruments in a worship service, which is strange to me because there's so many references to instruments in the Old Testament. If, if Psalm 150, the last psalm, it's all about, the whole thing is about instruments. But, 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 but it's also adding, it's adding to the gospel of grace. Whenever we make a rule like that, it's adding to the gospel of grace. What is it doing? Remember that in Leviticus 14, the bird that's released, which is a representation of a Christian who's been um, freed from the law? What it's doing, it's weighing down one of the wings. Oh, you can't have musical instruments. By the way, there's 10,000 other laws from where that came from. That's why um, in Hebrews chapter 3, it says, vigilantly. Strive to stay in grace <laughs> because every day something wants to pull us away from the, from the freedom of the Lord. But here you have this wonderful, you have 120 trumpets with priests uh, uh, sounding, the, sounding them. Verse 13, indeed it came to pass when the trumpeters and singers were as one, meaning there was like really good harmony. They had, they had practiced. <laughs> they had practice. It, it, it is biblical, by the way, to have practice. It's not unspiritual to practice before the worship team uh, comes. Uh, it, you know, that's a whole other soapbox I could get into uh, on that. It, it's a spiritual thing to, to practice. It's not unspiritual. It's spiritual to practice. It says they were as one meaning they were all playing together in harmony with one another, to make one sound to be heard in praising and thanking the Lord. And when they lifted up their voices with the trumpets and cymbals and instruments of music and and praised the Lord, saying, For he is good, his mercy endures forever. So that's Psalm 106.1. It's also Psalm 118.1. He is good, and his mercy endures forever. And as soon as that happened, it says that the house, the house of the Lord was filled with a cloud so that the priest could not continue ministering because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of God. Now, that word glory is a very, very interesting word that I really want you all, particularly you all who attend Tuesday nights, to know what it means. It has the, it has the um, sort of the, 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 the idea of weight. 
the glory in the Old Testament. It's, it's, it's a weighty glory. It's, it's a weight, meaning it's, 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 um, uh, meaning it's, it, it's powerful and it overcomes um, everything in its path. And so the weight of God's presence, and don't think this is like a bad weight, but the weight of his presence, the glory of her presence was, was so strong. It says the priest could not continue to minister. And if you read about revivals, same exact thing happens. Like in some of these, some of you, many, some of you who read the Finney book remember, remember this, but this has also happened in, right here in Massachusetts with Jonathan Edwards. Well, that was in Connecticut is where that all started, but it spilled over into Massachusetts. But the glory of the Lord enters a room and it's just so great, everyone's just on their face because they really just can, can't continue to go on because it's so wonderful. And this, by the way, there's always weeping and joy at the same time. It's like this, it's this wonderful glory that enters the place. It says they couldn't continue ministering, is what they said. They could not, verse 14, continue ministering because of the cloud. Why? For the glory of the Lord filled the house of God. When the, glo- when the glory comes in, it's like, okay, everyone instinctively, by the Spirit, knows they just need to stop everything they're doing. Because everything we do is insignificant compared to what the Lord is doing right now. And so they stopped. Verse six, uh, chapter 6, verse 1, Then Solomon spoke. The Lord said he would dwell in the dark cloud... I have surely built you an exalted house and a place for you to dwell in forever. And so, some people, some people, some people, um, you know, some people ask, "Well, what is?" Or, and I hope you're asking, "What does that mean? He dwells in a dark cloud." You do see this from time to time in Scripture, and, and I think the the idea is. Kind of like the Trinity, three persons in one, incomprehensible. There's a mystery to God. There's a wonder to God. There's a uh, th- there's a um, there's a, a magnificence and greatness to God that cannot be completely understood. Uh, th- you don't really see this in the New Testament. And if you want to, if I'm wrong, email me and tell me. Paul says we are. He calls himself a revealer of the mysteries. And I just read, where was it? Not First Peter. I think it was in Acts, where, somewhere, where it just says that many of the prophets and godly righteous people long to know what you guys know today. So the, and, 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 then, and then in Timothy, Timothy, Paul says to Timothy, the Jesus Christ brought the gospel, the good news, to light. So it's, it's, it's kind of coming out of that dark cloud, and it's been revealed um, to us. Um, he says, the Lord said he would be in a dark cloud. Surely I will build you an exalted house and a place for you to dwell in. Verse 3, then the king turned around and blessed the whole assembly of Israel. While all the assembly of Israel was standing, so that... There's, there's over a thousand people here. There's hundreds of priests alone. And he said, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, 
So as soon as you see something like that, whenever you're reading the Bible and you realize someone started to pray, please take note. You were created to pray, and we learn so much from these prayers. Blessed be the God of Israel, who has fulfilled with his hands what he spoke with his mouth to my father David. Remember, God had told David uh, that he would build a... um, that, that David's son would build a house. Saying, verse 5, Since the day that I brought my people out of the land of Egypt, I have chosen no city from any tribe of Israel in which to build a house, that my name might be there. Nor did I choose any man to be a ruler over my people Israel. Meaning, he went around in a tent and a tabernacle from place to place, and there was not a king until King Saul. That's what that means there. Verse 6, yet I have chosen Jerusalem that my name may be there, and I have chosen David to be over my people, Israel. And so before the Israelites had come into the land of Canaan, they were on the other side of the Jordan River. Moses was talking to them in Deuteronomy chapter 12, and he said, I will show you where I want you to put my name. In other words, where I want my temple. It took 500 years. (laughs) But 500 years later, 450 to 500 years, here they are dedicating that place, that name where he wanted it to be. Verse 7, now it was in the heart of my father David to build a temple for the name of the Lord God of Israel. But the Lord said to my father David, whereas it was in your heart to build a temple for my name, You did well in that it was in your heart. Nevertheless, you shall not build the temple, but your son who will come from your body, he shall build the temple for my name. So the Lord has fulfilled his word which he spoke, and I have filled the position of my father David and sit on the throne of Israel as the Lord promised. And I have built the temple for the name of the Lord God of Israel, And there I have put the ark in which is the covenant of the Lord, which he made with the children of Israel. Verse 12. So this is Solomon's prayer, and so important to study this prayer. It says, Then Solomon stood before the altar in the presence of the Lord in the assembly of Israel, and he spread out his hands. Paul does say in 1 Timothy chapter 1, I would that all would raise their hands and praise the Lord. And it is a wonderful thing to, to lift up our hands to the Lord. I, I grew up in, 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 in churches in the western suburbs of, of Boston where I never saw that done. It, you just, people who, it's, it's just, Respectable people just didn't do things like that. They didn't teach the Word of God. They didn't believe the Word of God, uh, these churches. And, um, you know, today these churches have rainbow flags all over them. And uh, I remember the first time after becoming born again, I saw someone raise their hand. And it was just such a beautiful thing. Like, wow. Wow. That person knows God. 
That's not a requirement. It's not a law. We don't want to do what Paul tells us in Galatians not to do. Requiring everyone raise their hands. It's a wonderful thing when you get to the place where you realize you can publicly acknowledge just praying to the Lord like that. Verse 13, Solomon made a bronze platform five cubits high, five cubits wide, and three cubits high, and had set it in the midst of the court, and he stood on it. So this is, what is that, about seven and a half feet high? So he has to get up because there's like a thousand people there, and so, so that people will hear, be able to hear him and see him. And it says that he stood on it, knelt down on his knees before the Lord, before all the assembly of Israel, and spread out his hands towards heaven. So he's kneeling down, he's spreading out his hands to heaven. In verse 14 he says, Lord God of Israel, there is no God in heaven or on earth like you, who keep your covenant and mercy with your servants, and who walk before you with all their hearts. It's a wonderful thing. Someone was sharing with me just last night that they were away from, from church for a while, and they just longed to get back at, uh, at Calvary Chapel in the city where, where people, where they knew people would be who were serving him with all their hearts. That's a wonderful thing to hear. But here Solomon just acknowledges, he not only acknowledges how great God is, he acknowledges that, wow, Lord, you have brought people who follow you with all their hearts. Verse 15, you have kept what you promised your servant David, my father. You have both spoken with your mouth and fulfilled it with your hand as it is this day. So he begins, what did they say to Jesus? Teach us how to pray. What did he begin with? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is heaven. It's not a law that we have to begin this way, but it is highly advisable to make a practice of just beginning with crying out to God, just crying out how great he is, acknowledging that you have a plague in your heart, which this prayer, although it's the version in First Kings, has, you need to acknowledge there's a plague in our heart, and, but he, by the blood of Jesus, covers it over, just beginning that, that way. It's one thing I love about noon prayer, that's, that's how we begin every day. It says, therefore, verse 16, Lord God of Israel, now keep what you promised your servant David, my father, saying, you shall not fail to have a man sit before me on the throne of Israel, only if your sons take heed to their way that they walk in my law as you walked before me. So being in the practice of reminding God of his promises is a good thing, not to, so that he remembers, but so that you remember. And that's what he does. He's reminding God of his promise. Lord, keep a man on the throne of Israel. Establish this nation. Verse 17, And now, O God of Israel, let your word come true, which you have spoken to your servant David. Verse 18, But will God indeed dwell with men on the earth? 
Behold, heaven and the uh, behold, heaven and the heavens of heavens cannot contain you. How much less this temple which I have built? So there's a recognition there that, and, and, and this may seem normal for you. It wasn't on planet Earth at this time. Gods were sort of localized in different places. And here's a recognition that God is the God of the universe, and there's just one God. The Israelites were monotheistic, unknown at that time, one God. And he was God of everything, not God of the sun, God of the moon, God of the thunder, God of the desert, whatever, God of this area, that area. There's one God. Verse 19, yet regard the prayer of your servant and his supplication. Isn't that weird? He's the God. He made the heavens and the earth and the whole universe, and he actually listens to a prayer from me or you. It says, yet, verse 19, regard the prayer of your servant. Even though the heaven of heavens of heavens can't contain you, please listen to my prayer, O Lord, my God, and listen to the cry and the prayer which your servant is praying before you, that your eyes may be open towards this temple day and night toward the place where you said you would put your name, that you may hear the prayer which your servant makes towards this place. And may you hear the supplications of your servant and of your people Israel when they pray towards this place. Hear the heaven, hear from heaven your dwelling place and when you hear, forgive. So, by the way, so it says, hear the supplication of your people Israel when they pray towards this place. So when they were exiled, and Daniel is in, uh, in Babylon, actually, he's, uh, I believe in chapter 6 of Daniel, the, 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 the Medes and Persians were now in charge. Daniel did what every day? He prayed towards Jerusalem, even though there was no temple anymore. It had been destroyed. Verse 22. So he's, there's my count, I could be wrong, there's seven different prayer requests here. And what you see here is just the importance of forgiveness. As a church, we will not survive if we don't live in forgiveness. Colossians chapter 3 says, if anyone has a complaint against each other, even as Christ forgave you, so you must do. And so, and so this is all so much about forgiveness, and it's so encouraging to read. So he begins sort of oddly, at least to me, if anyone sins against his neighbor and is forced to take an oath, and comes and takes an oath before your altar in this temple, then hear from your heaven and act and judge your servants, bringing retribution on the wicked by bringing his way on his own head and justifying the righteous by giving him according to his righteousness. Quickly, what this is talking about, if anyone sins against his neighbor, this has to do with the dispute about the truth between a man or a woman or two men or two women, and they, and they sort of go to the temple, and, and, and one of them has taken an oath, I told the truth. The other's taken an oath, I told the truth. And, and the Lord says, you take care of it, God. You vindicate the truth. I can hardly overemphasize 
the importance of truth-telling in the, as your witness and to Jesus Christ and also if you are going to have a fruitful life in Christ. In Ephesians chapter 4, it says this, Put off concerning your former conduct the old man which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lusts and be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new man which was created according to God in righteousness and holiness. And then he begins, what does that mean to put on the new man? He's going to have a long list of what it means and doesn't mean. But the first thing he says is what? Put away lying. Let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. God will vindicate the truth in one way or another. And so it begins with this. You guys need to be truth tellers. Second prayer request, verse 24. If your people Israel are defeated before an enemy because they have sinned against you, listen, you will have calamity in your life. When you sin against God, He will loves you enough to bring calamity into your life. And here is one of those calamities. He's going to discuss several. Your enemy defeats you. But, middle of verse 26, when they pray, in, this, in other words, after they've sinned, um, uh, I'm, I'm sorry, this is middle of verse 24, if they return and confess your name, and pray and make supplication before you in this temple, then hear from heaven and forgive their sin. So if you're defeated by an enemy because of some sin that you've been in, your enemy may be the devil, by the way, but you get up and you go confess it, it says, hear from heaven and forgive the sin of your people Israel and bring them back to the land which you gave them to their fathers. Number three, verse 26. When the heavens are shut off and there is no rain because they have sinned against you, when they pray towards this place and confess your name and turn from their sin because you afflict them, then hear in heaven and forgive. Forgive the sin of your servants, your people Israel, that you may teach them the good way in which they should walk and send rain on your land which you have given to your people um, as an inheritance. Listen, just because you sin and you fall on your face bad, and God has whopped you by letting an enemy destroy you, or God has whopped you, it says right here, it says he brought no rain upon them, and so they were in a drought. It doesn't mean you're never going to have rain on your life for the rest of your life. It says, Solomon's like, he says in verse 27, here in heaven, forgive and send the rain. God will send rain to you again. But you have to, but you have to repent. I defined repentance last Sunday morning. Doing a U-turn and turning from wherever you're going and whatever you're doing and turning 100%, as Freddie was saying in the opening worship, and surrendering to God and go towards Him. That's repentances. Number four, verse 28. When there is famine in the land, pestilence, blight, or mildew, 
locusts or grasshoppers, when their enemies besiege them in the land of their cities, whatever plague or whatever sickness they have, whatever prayer, whatever supplication is made by anyone or by all your people, Israel, when each one knows his own burden and his own grief and they spread out their land, their hands to this temple, then hear from heaven your dwelling place and what? Forgive. And give to everyone according to all his ways, whose heart you know, for you alone know the hearts of the Son of Men. So God knows whether you're repenting or not. That's what it's saying there. The Lord knows if you're really repentant. You can fool men, believe me. I've been fooled so many times. I tell Stephanie sometimes, I just, just all the time, yeah, I, I, yeah, with, with someone, I, I, I get fooled. They're not the person that I thought they were. But you can't fool God. You cannot fool, fool God. When you come back, your repentance, if it's not real, he will not answer your prayer. There is a condition for the forgiveness and the, uh, and the answered prayer here. Verse 31, that they may hear, fear you to walk in your ways as long as they live in the land which you gave to your fathers. Verse 32, this is my favorite one because it's talking about, really it's talking about you and me, it's talking about Gentiles. And also, if you know, if you studied a lot about the Bible uh, and sort of what was going on in the history, particularly in the Old Testament, this is really radical. <laughs> this is for foreigners. This some is for someone who's not a Jew. This is really looking forward in history as well as to the current time, to the time when foreigners, people who weren't Jews, would be um, um, coming and giving their lives to the Lord. It says, concerning a foreigner who is not of your people Israel, but has come from a far country for the sake of your great name and your mighty hand and your outstretched arm, when they come and pray in this temple. And just so you know, when people see your life who are unbelievers, uh, just like this, when they see that God's glory on their life, they're going to be doing the same thing. They are going to be going to church somewhere or to the Bible and start seeking the Lord because of the glory that is put on your life. Verse 33, Then hear from heaven your dwelling place and do according to all for which the foreigner calls to you. Isn't that remarkable? That all peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you as, you as you do your people Israel, and that they may know that this temple which I have built is called by your name. The sixth prayer request. When your people go out to battle against their enemies wherever you send them, and when they pray to you towards the city which you have chosen and the temple uh, which I have built for your name, then hear from heaven their prayer and their supplication and maintain their heart. Their, their cause. Ephesians 6 says, you, sitting in this room, are in a battle every day. Every day you go out to battle. And it's important that you pray before you go out. That's what this verse 34 is about. When you go out to battle against your enemy, pray, and God will maintain your cause. Verse 36, seventh prayer request. When they sin against you, for there is no one who does not sin. 
And you become angry with them and deliver them to the enemy, and they take them captive to a land far or near. So this is a prophetic word about the time where this, in fact, would happen. They would be taken to a foreign land. Yet when they come to themselves in the land, in other words, like the prodigal son who wastes all his stuff and comes to his senses, whoa, what am I doing here? I, I need to turn to the Lord. When they come to themselves in the land where they were carried captive and repent and make supplication to you in the land of their captivity, saying, we have sinned, we have done wrong, and have committed wickedness, and when they return to you with all their heart and with all their soul, in the land of their captivity, where they have been carried captive, and they pray towards the land, which you, have, you gave to their fathers, the city which you have chosen, and toward the temple which I have built for your name, then hear from heaven your dwelling place, their prayer and their supplications, and maintain their cause and forgive your people who have sinned against you. So when they, in fact, were brought in exile to a foreign land, this would have been very encouraging for them to read. That God had not forsaken them. Verse 40, Now, my God, I pray, let your eyes be open and let your ears be attentive to the prayer made in this place. Now therefore, arise, O Lord God, to your resting place. You and the ark of the strength of your strength, let your priests, O Lord God, be clothed with salvation. Let your saints rejoice in your goodness, O Lord God. Do not turn away the face of your anointed. Remember the mercies of your servant David. Chapter 7, verse 1, when Solomon had finished praying, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offerings and the sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. The priest could not enter the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord had filled the Lord's house. And when all the children of Israel saw how the fire came down, and the glory of the Lord on the temple, they bowed their faces to the ground on the pavement and worshiped and praised the Lord, saying, for he is good and his mercy endures forever.